The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, the podcast by Helen and Dave from Saunders Studio. Humans are being digitized, and we're on a mission to make that better. Better decisions, better problems, better design. We make this happen with our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age, our speaking and workshops, and our digital design work. Artificiality is one of our favorite things to do. For three weeks out of each month, you'll hear from us. We'll take a decision or problem in the public sphere and pick it apart. We'll talk about a decision nudge that we're using, and then we'll wrap up with something that's caught our attention and made us think. Once a month, we'll interview a great mind someone who works at the frontier of human or machine intelligence. What can we learn from the practice of design? What might we learn if we had an insight into top designers' minds? How might we apply the best practices of designers beyond the field of design itself? Most of our listeners are likely familiar with design thinking. What other practices should we learn about and understand? To answer these questions, we talked with Kays Dorst, about his books, Frame, Innovation, and Notes on Design, to discover his views on the creative processes of top designers and understand his practice of frame innovation. We enjoyed both books and find insights that extend well beyond design into all areas of problem solving. We're particularly interested in applying frame innovation in our complex problem-solving sprints and consulting practice. Kays Dorst is Professor of Transdisciplinary Innovation at the University of Technology Sydney's TD School, He is considered one of the lead thinkers developing the field of design, valued for his ability to connect a philosophical understanding of the logic of design with hands-on practice. As a bridge builder between these two worlds, his writings on design as a way of thinking are read by both practitioners and academics. He has written several best-selling books in the field, Understanding Design, Design Expertise, Frame Innovation, Designing for the Common Good, and Notes on Design, How Creative Practice Works. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. We're excited to talk with you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Let me start off by asking a question. Um, What inspired you to write uh, Frame Innovation and Notes on Design, those two books? Mm, Well, um, so uh, I've got a background in design and in philosophy, and those are two quite solid fields and in between is this kind of swamp and that's where I am. So I do research into how creative processes of, in this case, sort of top designers work. And what I started noticing, sort of interviewing these top designers going around the world, I mean, best job in the world, by the way, the top people in your own field and you're sort of looking in their kitchen and see how they do everything, learn so much. And um, so what I saw happening there was that Although they're known for their great solutions and the pretty pictures and wonderful designs, if you see what they're doing, they were spending 70, 80% actually looking at the problem rather than the solution. 
And that whole solution thing seemed to happen quite quickly. And they really pride themselves when you talk with them and sort of when you sort of look at their firms about being able to um, create new approaches into problem areas. So that's why my own attention also shifted towards, okay, what is that kind of process? Because we haven't mapped that. Especially if you look at design schools, you get a problem and you come up with a solution and that's it. But where does that problem come from? What does that consist of? What is the context? All of that wasn't really properly mapped at all. So um, that's what I started doing. And then at some point, um, I was working from Holland at the university there. And then at some point, um, I thought, well, okay, I'm a professor. I can write a book about it now. But I'm also a designer. I need to try this out. I need to see when this works, how this works, for whom this works, etc. So I want to experiment. And um, I couldn't get those experiments off the ground in Holland because, uh, to put it nicely, Holland has a very highly developed critical culture. Um, not very experimental per se, but um, I uh, could get them off the ground here in Australia. So that's what I've done. So let's say seven years later and a hundred projects later, I felt that I could write the book and know what I was talking about, not just on a model level, but also as a practitioner, knowing what, what knowing what's what. So um, that was um, that's the frame innovation story. Notes on design is um, I sort of realized that when you're looking at how people learn and how people build up expertise in a field, then okay, you you sort of you do exper- you, you get experiences of what you do, you then. Um, reflect on those, you build up knowledge and meaning out of that, you start new experiments, and that's how the learning cycle goes. Um, So that's how you build up expertise as you are in practice. But I realized that that reflection step was often not very well supported. And I thought it would be interesting to write a book for practitioners, helping them with that reflection step. So all those pieces in notes on design, because it's it's all this sort of one page per, per, per subject, there's an experience in there and then a bit of reflection. And it was really sort of nice to sort of write because with 450 words to spend, you can't introduce anything. You can't theorize. You just have to put down the experience. And for people that sort of recognize the experience from their own practice, they should read on and sort of maybe the the, the reflection that I give using theory and all kinds of other stuff will help them deepen their own reflection on their practice. So in that sense, I find it a quite a kind of a humble book for um, practitioners to just help them with that reflection step and using insights from many fields and from philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, to support that step that otherwise is just poorly supported on the whole. So that is that book. And um, interestingly enough, um, it's worked in completely different ways than you intend, as these things do people find it very reassuring, which I I don't mean to be reassuring, but the fact that anything that they sort of struggle with is also in that book as something that is structural to the field, of course, helps you to sort of take it less personally in a way and helps you to sort of think about it in a broader sense than just struggling with it yourself. So it's been a good experience for a lot of people to just have that book lying around and just read a little bit every now and then. That's also why the pieces are independent of one another. Just get a sense of, okay. 
and also over time pick up different pieces because they sort of pick up meaning that before they didn't have, but now you're developing up and they become more relevant. So it's a kind of lying around book while frame innovation, there's a central model in there and the first chapters build up towards that model and then it gets sort of further explained and linked to other things in the second half of the book. So that's much more linear and notes on design sort of by design is, is very, um, very sort of little bits and pieces. It's a tapas menu in a way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I enjoyed notes on design from the perspective of, of um, having an insight into a designer's mind mm. um, and um, the every every short little essay gave it another sort of snapshot into one one thing, um, but it also alerted me to the the, the depth that you of, of um, scholarship that you had around the frame innovation, which is so I, I read notes on design first, mm. then into frame innovation from there, and obviously a very different book. Um, and it certainly, it, it, I, I liked that journey. I liked going from the, mm. the, the mind of the designer, and you know, you could, you could, you could feel people take a great sigh of relief when they're, oh, he's had that too, kind of experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, was really, you know, frame innovation isn't isn't, um, you know, you don't, you don't, you really do have to sit and read it in that linear fashion and yeah. think through the steps. Um, but I've found that um, um, it spoke well beyond design. You know, it really did speak to just problems in general. Mm-hmm. And this idea that um, that problems are becoming more um, complex and dynamic and open and networked, I think there's a, there's a quote that we quote from you a lot, which mm-hmm. is something along the lines of, um, you know, when we chose to network our opportunities, we networked our problems as well. And um, when we when we use that in workshops, you can see the look on people's face. A bit like designers mm. reading notes on design, they go, "Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That. okay." Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and being able to put these simple labels around some of the complexity of problems and. Um, putting in some ways the internet in a slightly different frame as well because people suddenly see that level of human communication as being part of the part of the explanation so a lot mm. of people seem to be struggling for the or wanting the explanation for like am i going crazy are problems getting more complex or what mm. and frame innovation really was the 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 book that when i read it really landed yeah they are and it's not just one thing. It's many things. And um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that idea that you just don't hit these things head on, that you've got mm. to kind of come at them from so many different angles, frames. Well, frames is more yeah. of a formal yeah. thought. But I, I just felt like that journey was something that you sort of came to by talking to some of these experts. Yeah, and also there's also an intellectual sort of heritage to these kind of things. So um, it comes from people like Thomas Kuhn talking about paradigms, Donald Schoen picking that up and talking about framing and sort of in a book like The Reflective Practitioner, looking at different disciplines and what practitioners actually do. 
because I, so I've worked with, I've interviewed Thomas Kuhn, I've worked with Donald Schoen, the old man in the field, basically, and their sorcerer's apprentice in a way. And um, realizing that, okay, these are people that are sort of have this insight about how do we deal with concepts in our head and how do we deal with paradoxes. But I also realized that, um, let's say, especially with sort of Donald Schoen and his talking about framing, where do the frames come from? He doesn't sort of answer that. He uses frames to understand how people are thinking. But I'm interested in the creation of frames because that's what you need to do. And when you're a designer, basically, or when you are a practitioner creating new bits of the future, you need these new frames. But where do they come from? How do you come to them? And that's when I started looking back into my interviews and studies of all these designers going, okay, how do they do that? And there you see the, the movement of, okay, they actually, they listen very carefully to the brief, but they don't take it that seriously. They investigate it in a certain way. They look at where is it, does it come from, et cetera, et cetera. And um, especially, I mean, one of the disadvantages of studying absolute super experts is that everything they do has become natural to them and very implicit. So they make these huge, complex cognitive leaps where you think, oh, okay, it's happened. But what happened? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, because they've got all of that experience that they bring to bear on a new situation and they just know what to do. So what I had to do based on all of those interviews and that thinking was to more or less pry apart that whole process that, and, and actually make it into a process of singular cognitive steps that everybody can more or less safely do that sort of approximates what these super experts do. But the super experts are always going to be better based on all of their experience. And trying to create a process that sort of helps you learn how that works, helps you. It's typically one of those methodologies. And people always think that the methodology is good because it makes you quicker. It's actually meant to slow you down because you, when you get into a situation, you immediately judge and you immediately think what you need to do. This helps you slow down, take the context seriously, extend it, etc., etc. So in that sense, it is a created process. And I also see that people that have done it a couple of times know how to do it. And basically, it becomes very fluid and you can't discern the steps anymore, etc., et which is completely okay. It's an in into this kind of thinking, but it's not an expert wouldn't have to do it in exactly this way or in exactly in this order. Um, but for a beginner, it's a good way in, basically. Um, so I think that's... Um, and sort of in frame innovation, I also realized that, okay, this is not for designers. These are practices that come from design, but that are relevant in many other fields. And uh, so for me, it was the first time, sort of... I, I, I don't have any trouble writing for designers. I sort of know who they are. I know where they live. I know what funny clothes they wear, et cetera, et cetera. It's all, I, I, I know my audience there. But this was really for others to pick this up. So I started a research center, and of the 25 people that were in there, there was only one other designer. And it was sort of criminologists, historians, ex-civil servants, et cetera, lots and lots of different people. And I saw them all sort of struggle and trying to understand how this would work as a kind of central methodology. So that's how I sort of road tested it in a sense, experimenting on my own people um, 
to make sure that it is solid enough. And still, there's a couple of steps within a frame creation process where it really helps if you've got experience. So, of course, and it's a, that's where I sort of, uh, let's say my people were sort of struggling through a complex process and I or the other designer would sometimes come in and go, um, yeah, great, you're doing well. Uh, I would sort of forget about that one. I would take these two together and move forward in that way. You're fine. Um, just based on the experience that you have. Um, so um, I guess that's the um, um, that's the thing. And the, the way I wrote Frame Innovation was basically giving hundreds of presentations for different audiences to try and understand that there's actually stuff in there that I don't particularly like, but I know that the audience needs it or the audience likes it or it triggers people to understanding it. So I just have to put it in there. So that that's how I've tried to sort of, in a sense, front load the communication into the book to make sure that it is convincing because it is about impact. Yeah, I do want people to pick this up because I truly think it's really, really important that we do this now and at scale and across many, many disciplines. How would you compare or position frame innovation uh, and design thinking? Um, let's say that, so I've been doing my research into how designers think and how they work. And at some point, my good friend Bruce Nussbaum wrote a paper in Business Week about design thinking, IDEO, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, okay, this is great because... I'm seeing the value of these practices that designers have. It's great if that now gets broad, sort of a broader audience. Somebody else is doing my publicity for me. Great. Um, but then I quickly realized that, well, wait a minute. Um, it's jumped on by business schools, and they just use the word design thinking to repackage the things that they're already doing. Um, so a lot of the design thinking stuff isn't very great. And it sort of spoils the brand of design really badly. It's just too superficial. There's also stuff in there that just really doesn't belong in there. I a lot of it is about, okay, you need to be brainstorming a lot. I think, well, brainstorming is actually not something that I see designers do at all. These expert designers don't brainstorm. They don't need to. If you've got a new approach into a problem area, all your ideas are interesting to explore so you don't need to go random on an idea. And brainstorming comes from Osborne, 1952, from a business school. So again, it doesn't even belong in there, but it's very much associated, become associated with design through this design thinking movement. And I think that's a pity. Also, the design thinking stuff, it, a lot of it is about human centeredness. So there's basically creativity, human centeredness, and quick prototyping, which I guess... Um, if you're in a field that doesn't do that, that isn't very human-centered or has lost its connection to the values that it's trying to create, uh, if you've got a field that doesn't know how to deal with creativity but tries to analyze itself to a solution, and if you're in a field that thinks very linearly, then it's good to have this as a kind of counterforce as part of your repertoire. And people really recognize that sort of the freedom that it brings them and people feel it, it's a good experience for people to get acquainted with it. But let's say I, I, I look at design very much as a way of thinking with quite deep practices. And um, 
just these techniques and partly tricks don't do that job for you. And things like quick prototyping, you think, yeah, it's sometimes a good idea. Often it's not a good idea. You can also think about it before you start doing something. So I'm more on the thoughtful side rather than the let's do a quick prototype and blah, blah, blah. Because you can easily get to sort of a local optimum or miss deeper layers of the problem space because you're actually not engaging with it because you're rushing to solutions. And that's never good. So um, on the one hand, I can understand why it's popular and it's a kind of antidote to lots of things that are very restricted in lots of professions. On the other hand, it doesn't lead anywhere in the, because it doesn't have the depth and it's just a missed opportunity relative to what design can bring to other fields, which is much deeper. And frame innovation is an example of that, but there's other stuff that design can bring. You think, yeah, that's really cool. And um, in a complex world, problems become more, become more designy in a way. So your response to problems needs to be more design-based. So taking that seriously and looking at that carefully, I think is what, 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 I'm, what I'm in favor of. And um, so I can see design thinking. Um, people describe it as a business fad. And if it is superficial, it will be that. Um, I mean, Bruce Nussbaum later started writing against design thinking and now calls it creative intelligence and tries to sort of pull that up. Um, and I can understand why. Going, okay, there's actually good stuff here, but design thinking as a movement doesn't quite capture that and doesn't quite bring that to the fore in a way that in the end will help us. Especially as you say, sometimes it's used as a an antidote to something else. Like we don't have enough fun at work, so let's do some design thinking. Mm. Yeah, and 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 poor companies create these kind of creativity rooms with sort of grass on the wall and differently colored chairs, and it, it looks like kind of play school stuff or whatever. And of course, when you go to a design firm, that's not what they have. I mean, why would you do that? And I can see lots and lots of brainstorming. The brainstorming sessions go badly wrong because brainstorm. on the one hand, it's nice to do the creative explosion thing. But then the next step, of course, is clustering. And then you have to choose what you progress with. And if that clustering still happens from an old perspective on the problem, anything that's potentially new in there is going to be dropped out anyway. So it doesn't actually help. It doesn't actually work. So it's a bit of a red herring, that one. Yeah, the um, the creative rooms um, spark, sparks a memory. We visited a, uh, a bank actually in Australia um, mm. many years ago that had an innovation team. And instead of the boring offices, that room, that was in a separate space where they had put on exposed brick, you know, mm. and tried to make it all that sort of creative-y space, um, you know, which is, you know, I, perhaps it worked, um, but uh, it didn't actually feel like a design room um, to me. But I, I think uh, there's also, you know, there's a downside too because the, the, there's a cost, which is mm -hmm. that um, it continues to perpetuate this um, perception that design is about aesthetics. Yeah. And and that is um, that's an ongoing challenge for has been a, a challenge for us. Mm. We're getting people to understand that it's really no. This is about how 
how something should work or how to solve a problem in a particular way. And, um, you know, I'm curious to, in your thoughts about how, how you um, navigate that conversation with people that, that have a misperception about design. So, yeah, so it was the reason to spend a lot of time on the earlier chapters of frame innovation to go, okay, what is the in? How can I sort of, how can I give people something that they recognize and then show how it can be dealt with through a designerly lens, basically? So that's why the open complex dynamic and network problems are sort of put front and center of that because that's something that people experience and that you can only sort of, I can try to convince people but if people recognize something, they've already convinced themselves in a sense because it's already in them already sort of. Um, so um, that's, um, that's the reason to do that. Um, um, I think the tide is shifting. I get less of the design is aesthetics misconceptions. I also tend to um, not use the word design so much because you sort of don't need it. I mean, these are practices that come from design, but they they don't equal design or whatever. And you don't want everybody to become designers either. It's just that these practices are useful because if you're looking at this type of problem, designers have been dealing with those for a long time. So let's look at those practices. And then just also talk about, okay, it's an exchange. So coming from design... Um, this is what I can offer, but also what are you what are you doing in this same kind of space? I remember, um, so I set up a transdisciplinary school here in, in Sydney. And one of the ways to do that, it's a collaboration of 25 different bachelor degrees. So from across nursing, uh, health, engineering, business, everything. I think, well, I'm not going to get 25 disciplines working together. But having a discussion with all of these disciplines about how do you deal with complexity, how do you create newness, etc., etc., there's all of these practices that are really useful and that can start to travel between these disciplines. So that's also how I tend to deal with design and with the design story. So um, just as an anecdote, I remember that I was sort of talking to people from the faculty of law and I was going, well, I'm from design, let's swap practices um, and by the way, I know what I want to learn from you guys because you're from law. You're very good in dealing with precedents. Everything that happens in a court is laid down and you apparently have a, a situated knowledge. In this situation, this and this was the judgment and these were the reasonings behind it, etc. And um, that's really cool because um, in design, I don't have that. We talk about design results but we never actually lay down all the reasoning behind it and you've also got a way to find this back all of this knowledge and you've got a way to discuss it subtly with one another about whether this is comparable or not comparable etc so i need to learn how to deal with precedents to build up knowledge in design in a better way than we're doing right now and so we talked a lot about that and then they said well we also know what we want to learn from you then because um the problem is we're always too late. So a new technology comes up and we only start thinking about it the moment the first court case happens, which means that those court cases are very expensive. Only the big firms can even, can, can even afford that to do those kind of things. And 
we're actually holding back innovation. But and we're not in the business of holding back innovation, but we have no way to think ahead. I think, okay. So they set up a, se- a speculative law center for technology that isn't quite there yet. Sort of starting to think ahead, using design practices for that. So that's that's the interesting bit of how can you make practices that are sort of within the whole repertoire of that we have as humanity and in society come together around the things where they're most needed. And even in that transdisciplinary work, underlying are still design processes because you need a good open process where all of these practices can come together. So in a way, it is still design-led, but I talk about it as transdisciplinarity. I don't need to talk about it as it's design or it's a design process or whatever. It's just about, okay, we need a good, fairly goal-directed open process in which we can bring together lots of stuff that needs to be reconfigured and created in a new way. So that's, that's, that's how that works. Many people will think of design as a process that has a, an endpoint, you know, because mm-hmm. it comes from a history of designing a building or designing a chair or a widget yeah. or even a, even a website, and you've completed the project. And when you're talking about complex problems, if you think about complex problems in the, in the, from the perspective that they are emergent and adaptable, they're constantly changing. And as you interact with those problems, the problem themselves change. How do you think about applying design practice to something that has to be constantly iterated, you know, to be able to continuously solve the problem again and again? It's, um, I, I think design doesn't do itself a favor by saying, well, there's a briefing and then there's an end result. Because uh, if you're working as a design agency for, I mean, I'm a product designer by origin, uh, there always was a product before. So you're creating a new generation, actually. So you are already part of something that is much larger than just saying, well, this is the briefing and this is the end result. Um, so design in that sense needs to be redefined a little bit um, to make sure that we understand it as a broader and as a bigger thing. And also, sort of, as, as designers, you know that it gets more interesting when you've worked with a client several times because you get into more strategic discussions with them, etc. So the level actually elevates through all of those interactions. Um, so I would look at design in that sense more as a connection to a problem area or to a different organization over time, rather than focus so much on the project, because I think that's where design really does itself a huge disservice. I mean, if I'm asked to look at design firms and how healthy they are, you're always looking at the repeats. You're not looking, can they do a project? Everybody can do a project, a one-off. But is the client actually coming back? Is that relationship deepening? then you know that they're good and that they're actually delivering value, not just on the problem-solving level, but on that deeper thing. And having dealt with sort of lots of, let's say, public sector organizations, they're in an ongoing process of social change, et cetera, et cetera. And so the projects never end anymore. Everything becomes very sticky um, because you've also taken responsibility in this. And uh, you don't want to let go and you build up your own expertise and knowledge about a space. So um, it's more talking about programs rather than projects, I think would be better. And it also opens up a different level of design knowledge 
something we haven't really mapped yet. But um, years ago, I wrote a book together with uh, Brian Lawson, who is, um, so I'm a designer philosopher. He is an architect and psychologist. So together, at least we're broad, basically. He wrote a book on design expertise. And one of the things that we did was sort of interview top architects and top designers, um, let's say people like Norman Foster, et cetera, et cetera, about what they do in their firm. And it's really interesting because it's not management. It's about creating an environment in which their type of projects can happen. And they do hundreds of things to make sure that that's there. So, they're, for instance, they're very careful about which projects do you have on the wall in a firm. Those have to be the projects that you still want to think about or that challenge the current paradigm or the challenge set of frames within the firm and help it develop up further and how they use uh, competitions and how they use publications to also mirror back into the firm where this is where we are now, this is where we're going, et cetera, et cetera. So really seeing that as a living thing and having this whole very particular layer of knowledge, which is not about the design in the project itself, because as soon as the big man says something, everybody stops thinking. That's not a good plan. But really creating the environment and also very particular about um, human resources. I remember Norman Foster saying, well, one of the problems we have that every architect that applies to work here is absolutely brilliant. That's not the issue. So job interviews really don't work because they're all great and the portfolios are wonderful. But we need people that can, on the one hand, toe the line of these projects and on the other hand, add expertise, add their own flavor to it, et cetera, et cetera. It is actually all about that kind of sweet spot that they're trying to get. And he said, so we've sort of stopped doing interviews. We just hire people for two weeks um, because then you know. And he said, basically, we know it after two days. The two weeks is way too long. But it is about a real <laughs> interaction in the work where you know how people can actually challenge and be supportive rather than just being critical or just being negative or it's all wrong or or be too um, too much of a follower because you don't want a fan club in your firm. You want people that actually do the independent thinking. So there's a whole level of design knowledge, of design thinking, designerly thinking that sits on that level. And it's not management. It's not MBA stuff. It's not business school stuff. It is still about design, but it is how do you nurture a certain type of design and how do you create a team that is challenged, etc. So that there's so much still to discover on that level because we've done some interviews. But other than that, as far as I know, nobody's actually mapped those kind of things. Yeah, and some of the, the things that you talk about, um, what I hear you say, uh, th things like this, the skill of being able to um, stay in the problem for a long time, that, that sort of 80% mm. or kind of level but at the same time be able to see through into some aspect of this of various solutions enough to be able to sort of test whether you even have the right frame around the problem and that that skill seems to me um where you describe it to be so um almost black and white, you either have it or you don't. You know, you have to be, you, you've either mastered it, you've mastered the art of that, which is essentially a conversation. You can't not do that 
as a conversation. It needs to be so back and forth and so sort of real time. Yeah, um, and that's that where sort of, sort of in the original model of frame innovation with the nine steps, they're actually in a circle <laughs> because you do need to move from one to the other to see if, if, if I take it in this way, what would that then lead to? Is that a good plan? And then go back, of course. So those iterations are in there. Um, in my own research, what I've seen, so I've done research in sort of design schools on design students, the good ones and the bad ones, and then just sort of with psychological tests, seeing what is the difference between them? Is there a psychological difference between them? And the biggest correlation in there was the tolerance for uncertainty. People that had a low tolerance for uncertainty would jump to conclusions and start working on those solutions, while people with a higher tolerance for uncertainty were just sort of wandering around, in a sense, and wandered more into that problem space and trying to look for a way into the problem, while the others were already more or less in solution mode. So I think that that is partly um, someone's character, I guess, and feeling comfortable with, um, I'm starting a design process now, I really don't know what's going to come out of this. I actually deeply don't know what's going to come out of this. That's something that has to be a positive vibe and a positive tension for you rather than something that just um, makes you feel... It's it's almost sort of... It, it's the same actually with organizations. I was working with an organization in the Netherlands and they were doing a big program. And... Um, they sort of the first phase was kind of a researchy phase had gone really well and they and then they were very slow in coming through uh, with the with the money for the next phase i was going well hey we've got a crisis going on let's get on with it and um they said no 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 it's it's okay it's all going to be fine um but um we we just sort of it takes a little while on our side because we are managing uncertainty and then i sort of laughed in their faces which i shouldn't have done because risk is something that you can manage um, and run away from if you want to. Uncertainty is something you have to go towards and explore. And that's exactly what the project was about. So managing uncertainty or just the confusion between uncertainty and risk is a huge blocker to innovation. If everything that is not sure is a risk, you're in trouble. You can't move anymore, basically. And the thing also with uncertainty is it is within you. You can be uncertain about everything. So given a bit of a creative mind, you can think up so many blockers. And if you if those all become risks, you can't move at all anymore. Do you have any way of um, identifying whether someone will be able to be comfortable with uncertainty? Um, it's sort of the, often the language they use. Not so much what they say, but how they say it. Um, so you get a bit of a radar for it, and sort of, and um, um, because um, there's a lot of language that is about planning. There's a lot of language that is about evidence. There's a lot of language that is about best practices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's all language that moves away from a tolerance for uncertainty. And um, even if it's a complete red herring. You say to people, well, actually, um, a best practice is something that worked in the past. In a changing environment, there's no guarantee that it will work in the future. So 
where do you think, how do you think that that creates certainty? But they still feel that they can then defend whatever they've done based on the best practice, even they know it's not going to work. You go, okay, yeah, that's hard. It's a hard situation to work with. Um, because um, people actually, in a sense, aren't true to themselves or to the situation when they move in that way. And it just becomes sort of, I'm safe in my organization because I've done something that the organization always does rather than I've actually stepped out of that. So, um, and it really depends also on the environment of the people. Is there a safety around taking a risk? Is there a safety around exploring things? Is there a space for change? If there's no space for change in an organization, nice people, but they can't help that they're just stuck in what they're doing. Which is often what you um, see kind of in, 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 in sort of the middle level organization, parts of an organization, where sort of people on the coal face, they deal with the real world out there and they improvise, either within or slightly outside of the boundaries of the organization, but they, they manage. And there's, if you go to the top of the organization, there's a certain freedom to allow other thoughts and to sort of think about other strategies and things. But in the middle of the organization, the roles and responsibilities of the people there are defined in a certain way, which is, and that certain way encapsulates the current way of problem solving of that organization. And they can't suddenly do something else. They can't suddenly adopt another frame which goes across stuff because that's not how their roles have been defined. Um, so that's where the stuckness comes from or what people here in Australia would call the permafrost is there. Yeah. And that's exactly where innovation needs to happen, of course. That is and, and totally the level of stuckness. Mm. Um, the, the, the word abduction um, is, you know, generally not that much of a popular word. I've seen people say we don't, we don't, we talk about deduction and induction, but even though the word abduction has been around for quite a long time, mm. um, we don't talk about it because it, it's just a sort of uncomfortable word. We interviewed um, Tania Lombroso a couple of years ago, who's deeply involved in a lot of the psychology of, of explanations and, and, mm. and um, some of her scientific papers sort of pull, pull that word out um, and define it. It's become quite a popular um, idea and in artificial intelligence that that's going to be what's required is to have machines who are able to, yeah. to think inductively. And I was quite um, kind of taken aback when I found it in your book <laughs> and hadn't thought about it as being a, applied to design, always thought about it as sort of really more of a philosophy of science, um, uh, you know, the need for a better explanation explanations driving um, inquiry and the generation of explanations being, you know, better explanations over time. So um, I'm really curious about how you thought about it in a design context, how that sort of came to you and, um, and, and how you've managed to translate that into, into thinking about frames. Well, the, um, I, th I think the point just came from, the simple realization that if I say that design is another way of thinking, I need to be able to understand it and explain it in terms of the other ways of thinking too. How is this different? What is actually happening in design that isn't happening in those other ways of thinking? 
And I was just exploring, also from my philosophy background, how deep that difference sits. Is it a bunch of other practices or is it actually a different way of reasoning? And then coming up to um, abduction and realizing, wait a minute, um, abduction, as you say, it's very much the sciences. It's very much that's where it comes from. Uh, Pierce, sort of late 19th century. Um, but if you, if you look at what designers do, they move from value to causes, in a sense. They think backwards. Um, and how does that work? What, could, what kind of steps do you need to take? So that's where abduction actually became very useful for myself as a way to understand what that is and also as a way to understand, let's say, people that are very inductive or deductive in their thinking. What kind of misunderstandings are you going to run up against? in an organization or in a meeting. When people think in those ways and comfortable thinking in those ways, what are you doing that is different? And how can you start to bridge those gaps? Um, it also comes a little bit from working with Thomas Kuhn. Um, I was just a couple of weeks ago re-looking at my interview with him, a very old man and a very young me. Um, and what's really interesting, he says, well, um, I, the, the real problem with the paradigm story is that, so let's say the story from science is that, okay, there is an old paradigm, and I actually didn't use the word paradigm, but the word disciplinary matrix originally. So there's a whole field that works in a certain way uh, and thinks in a certain way, but there's more and more anomalies, and that's why the paradigm needs to sort of be amended. Things need to be added to make sure that all those anomalies can be um can be can be sort of caught within the thinking and dealt with but it becomes much more complex and at some point it sort of collapses under its own weight and there's a new paradigm which is elegant and simple and better and that will actually sort of help people think think further um, talking with thomas kuhn he said the big problem in change is that the new paradigm is always worse than the old paradigm from a problem-solving perspective, because the old paradigm is adapted to solve everything that it sees. The new paradigm is a bunch of thinking, and it probably resolves something in a new way, but it also is very vague. It's got lots of gaps in it, etc., etc. So it's not that attractive for people that are stuck in an old paradigm to pick up a new paradigm at all. And he says that's where... Um, and they can't pick it up if they keep in their problem-solving or what he calls puzzle-solving mode of thinking. Because the new one then, from that perspective, is just... He says, it's not the, problem is, the problem is not that they're wrong. The problem is that they're right. <laughs> from a problem-solving perspective, short-term perspective, the old paradigm does okay. And why would we need to change everything and go to a new paradigm? So he basically says, well, the only way you can convince people, he says, it's a leap of faith... And the only way you can convince people of a new paradigm is through something that has nothing to do with problem solving. So let's say in, in, um, in mathematics, it would be elegance. There is a kind of underlying value of elegance if the new paradigm is more elegant, which is an aesthetics. It's a beauty thing almost. That actually helps people to understand and adopt the new paradigm. But he basically was pretty ruthless, basically saying, well, anything that works, works, basically, to help people make that jump, um, which I think is 
It's absolutely true. Um, so the misunderstandings between these kinds of thinking are so huge. And um, the, 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 an old paradigm always is very linked into hardwired into deduction, induction, small steps, evolution in that space. It's all safe, etc., etc. What we're asking people to do to adopt something new, a new frame or a new paradigm is quite a shift. And just trying to map that out got me down to, okay, this is actually what abduction is. It's a different way of thinking. Um, people find it enlightening to see these different ways of thinking expressed in the same way so you can look at the differences and understand what your differences are. Um, and then, of course, it does also allow people to respect things like abduction and things like design, which is always really hard because um, these designers, they don't even know what the problem is and they're working on solutions and what, 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 and it's a very playful process. And every time I come there, they've got another idea and another idea. Yeah. They're actually exploring different ways of the how and the what, how that can work together, blah, blah, blah. So it's actually a very careful exploration process, but from, people that are used to abduction to to, de to deduction it just looks very vague and just not something to be respected and what talking about abduction helps is with that respect bit okay it, it is a different way of thinking that can also be mapped people feel safer with that yeah and it can be named you know you put a name yeah. on it we have a dynamic between the two of us where you know, I'll go, he describes it as I go from A to D. And um, I have to say, wait, 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 back up, back up. you got to fill in those gaps for me because I don't know how you got there. Some way that you did that. I don't doubt that there's some connection, but you you have to slow down for me. Yeah. And it's, yeah. always, it's always the quality of the explanation. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the dynamic between us that works. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if I can't come up with an explanation, then at least there's a you know there's a higher probability that it's just kind of a bad idea, mm -hmm. like not. And, and but then it's interesting because there's this nice contrast because he's so much more comfortable with just wallowing in the problem forever. Mm. So we have this push all between us, okay. right? Yeah. See, go exploring and see all these different routes. And he's sitting there saying, no, no, we're staying in the problem for a bit longer. Hmm. And, um, and the, thing that the thing that moves us off that position is actually in the end just being done. Hmm. You know, you, you actually just get to the point where there, there's nothing else to talk about, so something must be either correct or incorrect. You yeah, know, there's, there's, there's a there's, kind, of, kind of saturation happening where if, yeah, we, if we keep right. thinking about it now, there's nothing much new that we can come to. So this is it. And this is what we can come to, and this is what we can bring in this space. I think it's a really, uh, it's a really interesting dynamic, definitely. <laughs> and it it is right. also one of the things that I that I sort of thought about, or that I sort of realized interviewing and watching these top designers, is that they're all analytically very strong too. They're known for their creative side, but analytically, they're they're creatively analytic, but good thinkers. There's nothing stupid or wishy-washy or vague about them at all. 
And um, so that was sort of good good to see too. Wait a minute. It, it all plays a role. It all plays a part. I guess within design, abduction is more dominant in some phases, but you need the other ways of thinking too, of course. Just like the other fields need more abduction. So, um, and that's where it can become a bit of a common ground, which I think is, is where we need to move to. Yeah, I think you're right about the the strong analytics um, is something that people wouldn't expect for design. They think it's all about creativity and how it looks and da-da-da-da-da, and they miss the fact that so many um, opportunities and pathways are passed on because mm. you analyze it and well, that, that's not going to really solve the problem well. So mm. we have to go back, we have to think about this in a different way. We've gone down that, but you analyze it really carefully to make sure sh- to figure out whether it will actually solve the problem well enough if you've set up the whole problem well to begin with. But it's that extreme power of saying no you know, to being able to say no to things and you have to analyze it well to be able to authoritatively say to to yourself, if not to everybody else, no, no, this isn't the right path. Well, and yeah. that's, that speaks to some precedent ideas, right? Mm. I mean, you're talking yeah. about law, at, at, you know, one of the, one of the projects that um, we'd love to do more on uh, <laughs> is, is part of the issue is how do you um, show precedent for, particular decisions mm-hmm. in a very fluid, um, very ambiguous environment. Nothing is locked down. Law demands that precedent is, you know, has this sort of heritage and legacy. Mm-hmm. But it's much more difficult in a fast-moving business environment to, to have that um, precedent why every decision was made. But yet the number of times that people actually want to know and, mm-hmm. and don't necessarily understand that it's a design it's designery it's a designerly problem to solve how people came to their particular versions of a problem or solution or decision Mm. that that um capture and that that builds the knowledge that that is part of how created and i mean capturing design knowledge capturing that sort of level of design expertise is really really hard also, I mean, I've done a project years ago with Philips in the Netherlands because they wanted to sort of know their design decisions and capture their design decisions because you've got big teams, you've got generations of products. You don't want a design decision to sort of just be taken off, be, be misunderstood or misinterpreted when you're working on the thing later on. So what they tried to do was actually have this horrendous system where you basically had to type in all of your design decisions all the time and uh, which nobody wanted to do so that ended up at the end of the project but projects don't end they sort of peter out people from the team leave etc etc so at some point you get sort of the longest intern uh, the, the, the youngest intern who's still left in the project get, they get tasked with two things the manual <laughs> which is why manuals are so bad <laughs> And they get tasked with capturing all the design decisions, and it really doesn't work. What, what in the end, they did, which I think was really clever, was to actually give a new team that was coming up with the new generation of that product a couple of weeks to interview people from the old team and actually draw those decisions out because it's useful for them. It's important for them. By the moment that you're towards the end of a project, you, as a designer, your brain is already on the next one. <laughs> 
you really don't want to spend time during bureaucracy on everything that happened as far as you can reconstruct mm. it. But people from the new team coming in and interviewing is the right kind of dynamic. So maybe that's the moment to capture it, not at the end of a project, but at the beginning of a project. But then take time for that, create space for that. Otherwise, um, I mean, the risks that those organizations run of people just going somewhere else and then lots of knowledge being lost, of course, is huge. And um, and you're not holding on to what you've done. And you're, so the, the danger of reinventing the wheel is huge. It, it, it will probably would be a nice study to see how much money gets lost by design decisions that sort of become undone because they're misunderstood. It's probably a big I'd figure. Love, love, love to see number. that. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you um, what you're working on next. What is the next book in your series, if you will? Okay. Um, I'm working on um, a book. It's called Creating Space for Deep Change. And what it actually does is, is it extends the frame innovation story because over the last seven years since sort of finishing and publishing frame innovation, I've become more involved in, let's say, bigger change projects where frame innovation still coming from design is a bit project focused. Um, I'm looking now at sort of how does organizational change happen? How does sector change happen? How does societal change happen? Um, really sparked by, um, let's say, for instance, the transitions that we're in now at the moment, if we're going to the societal end. Basically, all of our big systems in society uh, are up for grabs, need to change. Education, care, energy, carbon neutral, etc. Everything is going to change. Um, but if we're not careful, all of those changes, I mean, you can see that those changes, they're thought about from a technical perspective and from an economic perspective, but not so much from a societal perspective. But if you're not careful, um, you're actually creating rifts in society now because it's always the same people that can't hook on to those changes, basically. I mean, it's nice to say, well, there's an energy transition, you should have solar. But if it's not your house... Or if you can't invest in solar, you also can't actually make back the money on the solar. But other ways of heating are going to be more expensive. So there is all of these changes are potentials for huge rifts in society. Always, And that's where you get populism. That's where you get people that feel that they're left out of a future that apparently is happening. So um, thinking about the framing that needs to happen on those levels is what I've mostly been doing and seeing how we can help these kind of bigger transitions to be inclusive rather than exclusive. Um, so that, that's one of my big motivators at the moment. And also taking the frame creation story to, okay, if we talk about systems change, um, would we keep educating people based on the old system we're actually not building a new system. So that really needs to shift. Um, so there's a lot of these things at the moment where you go, okay, this, this kind of thinking is more important than ever. And how do we create a basis in society or an infrastructure in society where we can have this thinking um, um, because it is more important than ever, way beyond the project level um, uh, to, to, these, to these higher levels. 
And um, so that, that's what I'm mostly thinking about at the moment and writing about at the moment. So we've got some early examples of things that we're doing. And um, I think in that sense, there is on those, those, those higher levels, I don't know whether you should call them levels, but sort of sector level and societal level, there's so much that needs design input at the moment. Because if you don't, if, you, if you're just looking at the transition through a technical lens or an economic lens and you let society just deal with the consequences, you get a kind of Detroit situation maybe where there's been an economic decision and society just has to deal with it. No, if we actually want to do good things, we need to do good things for people in society. So society needs to be redesigned to adapt, etc., etc. We need to do that now. And um, it's also moving away a little bit, let's say, the, the stuff that I did with designing out crime. It's always reacting to situations that have gone badly wrong, basically. In this case, with these transitions that we know what they're going to look like, we have to be proactive and proactively design these societal systems that we need to make sure that we don't create these rifts. So that's what I'm. That's what keeps me awake at night at the moment. It's fantastic. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yes, <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading that book. Next. So, so am I, actually. I've, I've, I've got a full-length manuscript, but there's still a lot to do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. I think we could go on for a few more hours. Um, but uh, with respect to time, um, we just wanted to thank you so much. Okay, well, you're very welcome. And it was nice to talk. And uh, you've also given me some things to think about. So let's continue. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe on Substack or your favorite podcast platform. And please leave a positive rating or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. Seriously, a review on Apple Podcasts is a big deal. And if you like how we think, then contact us about our speaking and workshops and human-centered product design. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com, and you can contact us at hello at GetSonder.com. You can learn more about making better decisions in our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. The book is an essential guide to practicing the cognitive skills needed for making better decisions in the age of data, algorithms, and AI. Please check it out at mbd.zone, on Amazon, bookshop.org, or place an order through your favorite local bookstore. It's better, it's better, it's better, it's better.